Proctor here with a couple quick announcements before we get into today's episode. First, I would like everyone to know about the upcoming Erling Factory San Francisco. The Erling Factory is the largest U.S. event dedicated to the Erling programming language. It will take place on the 26th through 27th of March in the San Francisco Bay Area and will be accompanied by training sessions on the 23rd through 25th of March and the 28th of March through April 1st. Get ready for over 50 speakers, including inventor of Smalltalk and Turing Award winner Alan Kay, Elixir creator Jose Valim, Erlang inventors Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, and Mike Williams, Haskell and QuickCheck co-inventor John Hughes, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks author Bruce Tate, O'Reilly author and CS professor Simon Thompson, creator of the Parallel Board, Andreas Olofsson, and many more. Use the code FNGeekery for a 10% discount, and make sure to go to http colon www.erlangfactory.com slash sfbay2015 slash home for more information and to register. And second, I am happy to announce that this episode is sponsored by purelyfunctional.tv. If you are looking for high quality videos on Clojure, purelyfunctional.tv has you covered. Eric Norman walks you through topics including an intro to Clojure, to more in-depth topics such as core.async, and includes a lot of exercises along the way. The videos are available as downloads, allowing you to watch offline at your convenience, and previews of the videos are available on the site. To get your copy of the videos, go to http colon purelyfunctional.tv slash geekery, and use coupon code geek, G-E-E-K, to get a 25% discount on everything. And make sure to thank Eric Normand and PurelyFunctional.tv for being a sponsor. Welcome to the 19th episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Julie Moronuki and Chris Allen. Let's start with you, Julie. Would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am a mother of two little boys, and I homeschool them. I am a housewife, so I don't have a job. And I do, however, have a BA in philosophy and linguistics and an MA in linguistics. And I have recently started learning Haskell. I'm not sure what else there is to say about me. Okay. Well, we'll elaborate on you because your situation is exactly what I wanted to cover. So let's cover Chris real quick and give Chris an introduction, and then we'll dig more into your learning Haskell. I was a self-taught programmer that started when I was a kid, and I started out with Linux and C, but I found that I couldn't actually make anything that worked in C, and I couldn't make programs that worked until I found Common Lisp. So I was a Lisper and a Python user for a long time, and then I used Clojure until I cottoned on to Haskell, I'll say. I work as a programmer. I never went to school. I've been working as a programmer for seven or eight years now. I came across your blog post, Julie. It seemed to be making quite a few waves on Twitter. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. And I found it extremely fascinating and wanted to get you on because of the point of view of someone who's completely foreign to programming, getting into programming. Right. And some of those things that those of us who've been doing it for a while or even some of those who are just picking it up and figure out where we're strong and weak and what we can do better to help bring people into the community. Right. How did this whole experiment begin? It kind of mentioned that you came up with Chris in your blog post, but I wasn't quite understanding how that whole concept started. Well, Chris and I met on Twitter, and we met through some people who we kind of have politics in common. And so when we first met, it had nothing to do with programming. But it doesn't take long with Chris, as I'm sure you're aware, before he starts talking about Haskell. And we were talking one night about my background in linguistics and some of the linguistics work I had been doing in grad school. And he asked me if I had ever done or had any interest in NLP, natural language processing. And I said no, because I had no programming experience at all. And that discussion just led to wanting to teach me Haskell so that I could eventually, maybe, hopefully, work on NLP. And I wasn't very convinced that I would enjoy it or stick with it, but I think it's gone pretty well. I like it a lot, so I'm still here. It just became more of using programming as a tool for some other concepts around the linguistics then. 
Right. That was the idea to begin with. I didn't think I would like programming itself at all, to be quite honest. I have dated programmers in the past and never had any interest in learning it <laughs> at all. And so I really didn't expect that I would care at all about the programming aspect of it. And yeah, I don't know. And I guess he just told me right before I wrote the blog post, it's in the blog post, but he told me that he didn't expect that I would learn it very well either. So I guess there was kind of a mutual feeling about that on both sides, but neither of us told the other one that. So <laughs> do you have anything you want to say about that, Chris? I figured you could learn it fine. I just didn't think you would enjoy it. Uh, so that's the only point I would make. So yeah, and he told me when I was a little bit hesitant, he said, well, I've been trying to learn how to teach Haskell better. And so this would be a really good experiment for me to try to teach a non-programmer who's not really even interested in it. And so it would really help me if you did this. And so that was part of how he sold me on it. So I said, sure, I'll give it a try. But actually, Haskell is really interesting just by itself, even if I don't ever get to NLP, I guess. You came in not expecting much, but right. I saw uh, even linked a few articles that it seems like you've gotten an interest into it now, if for nothing else than just, I've got this little toy that I'm starting to learn, and more the intrigue of how much further you can take it. Yes. Well, it started to interest me on a lot of different levels because of my background with philosophy and linguistics, so I've done a lot of formal logic, and I did work on morphosyntax, and so sort of studying how sentences are put together, right, grammar. And some of the similarities, really, between Haskell and the logic that I was previously familiar with, and then some of the work I had done in syntax has really interested me, as well as just the idea of it is sort of interesting, and this is going to sound really stupid to programmers, but it is sort of interesting once you start thinking like, wow, I can make computers do things. <laughs> and I don't know why I was never interested in it before, but now, yeah, it's become interesting both for itself and as a toy and the sort of theoretical logic and stuff behind it. I don't know that I would say that the programmers would think you're stupid because I think that's a common background for a lot of us is that we found that, hey, we can make these computers do things. Right, And right. there's kind of that magic in that is what makes it so fun and exciting. Right, yeah, yeah. I can understand that now. I don't know why I couldn't before because, I mean, most of the programmers that I know started when they were so young. I think, Chris, you said you started when you were like eight or something, right? Yeah, GW Basic on DOS when I was eight. Right. And I don't know why I never did anything like that earlier in life, but I'm glad I started. I'd like to kind of go through and walk through your experiences. To start with, you had a lot of things. So there was even just getting Haskell installed and up and running and being able to do a few syntax stuff. Right. What was the documentation there? Because it seems like most of it, from other languages even, is addressed to people who know the concept of computers, know the concept of programming at some level. Right. And then it's based off that established knowledge of saying, okay, well, we assume you at least have some familiarity. Here's how you continue to get up and going. Yeah. And that was a big problem in the beginning because I've got this computer now that has Linux and I had never used Linux before. So that was kind of the first step and figuring out how to do any kind of commands in the terminal and because I'm old, I did have some experience with DOS, so it wasn't completely unfamiliar, but there was still a lot to learn there. There still is a lot to learn there. So that was kind of the first step, and then, yeah, figuring out what Chris would be talking about, or in Learn You a Haskell, one of the things I got hung up on so badly in the introduction to Learn You a Haskell, it talks about how Haskell is a statically typed language, and so I asked Chris, well, what does that mean? And I had a hard time understanding what statically typed means. And he's trying to explain to me the difference between runtime and compile time. And I'm like, what are you talking about compile time? What's a compiler? What is, what is all this stuff? It took a while to get over that initial sort of hump of just understanding what the steps are. So I type something into the terminal and then what's going to happen and how does that eventually tell the machine to do something, right? It wasn't just learning Haskell. It was learning a whole new setup and environment for you. Yeah, a whole new everything. A whole new way of thinking about interacting with the computer, right? Then it sounded like you also mentioned that you started out with the Learn You a Haskell book as well. Right, yes. Did you find that as a fairly good resource for Haskell? 
that at least gave you, aside from the compiler and static typing, right. looking back on it now, I'm guessing you've looked at other Haskell resources and stuff. Yes. Would you have picked that one again as your kind of your starting point? Or are there other things that you found now that you're like, actually, this probably explained it better for a complete new person to programming? Well, no, that's one of the things about Haskell. I think of the currently existing resources, Learn Your Haskell is probably the best one to start with. He says in the introduction, too, that he assumes that you have some background with programming. And to my knowledge, at any rate, of the resources I've seen for learning Haskell, there's nothing that's for somebody who's just completely new to programming. They all assume that you have some kind of experience, which that's sort of something you can overcome, obviously. But that's probably the best one that is out there right now for people starting from scratch. I've kind of, over time, as there were things that I didn't understand very well, or if I wanted more examples, I've done a lot of reading of people's blogs and found a lot of really helpful explanations of different concepts in Haskell that are, I think, better written for beginners, but those are sort of individual blog posts and not like one whole resource. I would add that one of the main things I'm known for in the Haskell community is actually a guide I put together for learning Haskell on my GitHub account. And the recommendation in the guide is to mostly skip learning a Haskell and only use it as a reference, not as an actual step-by-step way of learning Haskell, unless you're actually new to programming. If you know any other programming languages, I actually recommend you try to as much as possible. Go straight through a University of Pennsylvania course called CIS-194, and then follow it up with the NICTA course. There actually is a book for Haskell by Thompson, and it's actually designed for people who may not necessarily have programmed before. And it's the only book that I'm aware of that is designed to accommodate people who haven't programmed before. The only reason I didn't point Julie at that book was because I just wanted to kind of like just link her to something and get her going. Again, it was just kind of like a feeling things out situation. I wasn't really expecting her to enjoy it that much. If I had known that she was going to enjoy it that much, I would have encouraged her to buy the book or do something different. What book is that? Do I have that? Craft of Functional Programming by Thompson. Let me look okay. up the title. And that was more what I was wondering. is So it sounds like there are some things that are more targeted, but they may be finer niche, but Right, right. It's those resources that if someone who's listening is trying to introduce other people into this concept, be it familiar with programming or not, is to try and figure out where the gap is and what we can do for those who are interested to help bring those resources. Kind of like Chris's GitHub entry. I've seen his learning Haskell if you've never done it before. Yeah, yeah. And I've seen things like... There's a couple closure intros and things, but it's one of those things of what are we missing? Right. And how much internal knowledge do we assume of things? Like you mentioned, the compiler yeah. and static versus dynamic and more things that are in our lexicon right. than we think about that says, oh, well, what's a variable? Right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not familiar with this book that he just mentioned, so I can't comment on that. Maybe I should start keeping a list of the blog posts that I found most helpful as a raw beginner and kind of compile them somewhere for anybody who finds themselves in my position. Because there are a lot of the functional programming bloggers are actually pretty good at explaining them. But like I said, then you're sort of compiling individual blog posts rather than having a cohesive course. Absolutely. And it's one of those things, it seems everybody I talk to, at least, especially doing this, is more than willing to give you an explanation. Yeah. If you're unclear, but you don't necessarily know who the person to ask and find that resource from is as well. Right. Yeah, definitely. No, I've had good experience actually with other people in the community with asking them for help and them being really willing to take time to explain things to me and try not to talk over my head. Yeah, I've had really good experience with that. So they've been very helpful. What were some of the things that you found, Chris, that where Julie kind of challenged your assumptions on what you kind of thought that people knew coming in and trying to teach someone brand new versus trying to teach someone who may just be new to Haskell or new to functional languages versus procedural or OO languages? What were some of the things that you realized, oh, wait, this is really stuff that we take for granted? I've taught a fair number of people to program, actually. One of them I ended up working with at the same company later on. His background had been in finance, and I got him started with programming with Python and making websites with Django. 
I didn't have to do a lot. He mostly self-taught. I just gave him like three or four tutorials. There wasn't too much that surprised me in terms of what Julie didn't know. What surprised me more was what made sense and came to her easily. Some of it makes sense given her background in linguistics. Some of it was just kind of surprising. The other thing that surprised me was the level of curiosity. Julie exhibited more curiosity in what things actually were and how they worked than 90% of programmers I've helped learn Haskell. Most programmers, like once they feel like they kind of get something, they're done learning. They're just going to keep going. They're not going to ever revisit it. Her desire to really, you know, if you're a sci-fi fan, you'll understand this work, to really grok things very much impressed me and surprised me. But no real surprises in terms of what confused her. You did say that, because I didn't remember this until you mentioned it, but you said that I had in the beginning a hard time with just understanding what types were. And I don't know that that necessarily surprised you, but I didn't remember having a hard time with it until I remembered that I had a conversation with another one of our friends on Twitter and where I was confused about types, I guess. And so he was trying to explain it to me in terms of linguistics. And he said, well, you know, if you think of a function as a sentence, and so you've got then these types that are like word classes or morphological classes. And so they have arguments and the arguments have to be bound in a certain way to make a grammatical sentence. Like if you think of it like that, then maybe that would help you. And that actually helped me a lot. Being able to refer back to the syntax that I knew and kind of try to understand Haskell that way helped. But that's one of the reasons why recursion is not really hard for linguists because natural languages have recursion. So that was actually pretty easy for me. And I, was, I guess people get really hung up on it, but it wasn't a big deal. So Types didn't surprise me too much either. They were slippery and they were slippery in a way that so with types, again, I think that's actually another example of where you really wanted to understand it. It wasn't enough just to be like, oh, well, if the type says it's an integer, then I guess everything that comes through here is an integer. That level of understanding would have been fine for a lot of programmers. So I think any additional friction there was just about curiosity. Types are actually kind of slippery for programmers, too. I've had to explain more than once that types don't exist at runtime, for example. Just by definition, a lot of programmers would actually disagree with me on that. They're wrong, but it's still something that a lot of programmers don't understand. So when you're talking about things at runtime, anything that is a witness to what was a type at compile time is more properly called like a class or a tag. And that's a distinction a lot of programmers don't actually get. Right. Yeah, I remember that was one of the things in your blog post was when you were talking about the recursion. You're like, people are explaining it in terms of loops, but you're like, I have no idea what a loop is. Yep. So you mentioned in your case it was thinking of recursion as far as sentence structure and the larger sentence and how you construct those things together. Yeah. Other than that, were there any other good explanations of recursion that you had found that didn't establish preface on loops and some of that other assumed context? Mm -mm, I haven't really, but recursion isn't something that, because I didn't need a lot of sort of extra help with that, with understanding how that worked, I haven't really looked for that as much. So no, most of the ones I've seen make reference to looping, and when they explain recursion in linguistics, they don't make reference to that at all, of course, because that's not what you're doing with language. But no, I don't know. That's a good question. That'd be something worth looking for. What were some of the other things that kind of stood out as that kind of classification of things where recursion, we expect you to understand loops, so we're explaining it in terms of that, but what were some of those other things and the metaphors that kind of really helped stuck if you can recall some of them mm, well i don't know if you have anything chris go ahead let me think about it for a second what are we looking for with respect to recursion and loops it was more just some of those other metaphors and she kind of talked about types as well where the types were more thinking about the positioning and structure of the sentence but some of those metaphors that don't require as much knowledge about programming or other forms of programming when trying to explain some of the concepts. I find metaphors and analogies to be pretty pedagogically problematic more often than not because they allow people to project an understanding onto the analogy that doesn't actually match how the thing works. Probably the most notorious example of this is the monad analogy blog post phenomenon where people that just barely kind of just understood monads, they feel compelled to write a blog article about something they don't really understand and then they come up with a really bad analogy that they think explains it, but doesn't actually. Recursion can be susceptible to the same thing. I haven't seen a lot of it. 
The best explanations of recursion I've seen usually happen when people aren't trying to explain recursion, but when they're trying to explain folding. And explaining folding is important because that's just kind of a generic way to consume data. Now, most people think of folding as applying to lists. Well, not really, actually. It's a much more general concept than that. You can fold a maybe data type. You can fold an either data type. You can fold anything you want. With that in mind, when people try to explain the difference between fold R and fold L, the R and L standing for left and right, in Haskell, the easiest way to explain recursion is, well, I mean, it's all lambdas all the way down, right? Well, the nice thing about recursion is that you can visually display it. You can just write it out textually, what it turns into when you unroll all the recursions and write them out textually. The nice thing about that is it's visually obvious. You can write it out in text. You don't need a special medium for communicating it. And it's not a lie. You're not lying about how recursion actually works when you do that. The only detail it kind of skids over is that Haskell is lazy, not strict. So that's another reason you really don't want to think about recursion in terms of loops in Haskell, because if you're writing an OCaml and you have some kind of function that does direct recursion, yeah, that maps pretty directly to a loop, as you would think about it. In Haskell, it doesn't. So you have to be careful about that. So what I'm hearing is you're more of a proponent of visual diagrams and such over the metaphors and say, look, when we're talking about a map, maybe break down the map or whatever step by step and walk through the whole essentially unfolding that code at a high level and breaking it down and saying, look, at each step, here's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I don't think of it as visual or as textual, I guess, but that does make sense. Yeah, for me, it was really helpful, especially for folds, because getting the difference between fold R and fold L and how they were actually going to work, that was really helpful writing it out step by step. Well, I actually did that. I mean, I wrote it out by hand with a pen and paper several times to just to try to get it into my memory. Like, okay, if I'm doing a fold L, it's going to go this way. And I think I've kind of got it now, but it took a while for that to stick. And writing it out step by step helped me a lot with that. Not because I didn't understand the recursion part of it, but because just the direction I had a hard time with. I don't know if that makes sense, but one of them goes from right to left, and the other one goes from left to right. And it took me a while to remember. (laughs) No, that makes sense, at least on my end, because I've remembered looking at the difference between fold L and fold R on things like doing division. And it's like, if you look at something that depends on the order things are applied in, then it's like, oh, wait, well, what if you divide 1 by 10 by 100 versus dividing 10 by 100 by 1? Okay, that's a huge difference. And you don't necessarily know it and pick it up until you actually see, oh, oh, okay, there you go. Yeah, that was a big help for me. So, which I actually think that in Learn Your Haskell, I think he does that, doesn't he, with the folds? I don't remember. That's a good question. The word seems, we're, seems like he did, but the word we're looking for with left and right is that fold right associates to the right and fold left associates to the left. So associativity is what you're looking for, and that's why it matters if your function is associative, because using one versus the other will change the semantics if it's not. The other reason it matters is that if you want to stop evaluating the rest of the thing you're folding, you have to use fold right. Fold left line let you do that because of the way it evaluates. You also had a couple of other posts about making excuses for not knowing something and essentially doing the work of going to find out. Oh, yes. It sounded like you were non-apologetic for people who didn't know. You're like, look, I don't know either, but I'm willing to dig in and ask. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I don't want to seem like I don't have a heart or anything, but there does come a level where people are sort of talking and using a whole bunch of jargon. And so there's a possibility that other people in the conversation might not understand, but that is actually how people who think of each other as equals, that is actually how they talk to each other. So, I mean, in the linguistics community, that's how people talk to each other. And then if you're new to linguistics and you need something explained, you're sort of expected to pop up and ask or go Google, or if you're too embarrassed to ask, right, Google on your smartphone or something. But (laughs) And the same thing sort of in philosophy. And so those things can be really intimidating because they're all fields that have a lot of jargon. They have a lot of history that you need to understand. And so they can be really intimidating to newcomers. But when people who consider each other equals, right, beings of equal intelligence are talking to each other, then that's kind of how they talk. They assume that you'll participate in the discussion by letting them know if you're not understanding something. And so 
obviously, especially now because of knowing Chris and starting to learn Haskell, I'm, I mean, I, I follow all these programmers on Twitter. Obviously, a lot of the time I have no idea what they're talking about. But that's, I mean, I have to make a choice. Do I want to learn everything that they're talking about? Not really, because I probably don't have the time or that level of investment in a lot of the stuff that they're talking about right now. So that's a choice that I make then, or I can ask, or I can Google. And so I have constantly, I have all of these open tabs with all of these blog posts and white papers and stuff I want to read because I want to understand what they're talking about. And eventually I will. Gradually, it's getting easier to kind of keep up with their conversations. But that's on me. That's the choice that I'm making. That's a very good explanation. And I know a lot of times that I myself and a number of people talk to encounter that as well on just things we've yet to be exposed to or Kind of to Chris's point about monads, for those unfamiliar with monads, there's a whole lot of, I have no idea what they're talking about, and trying. Yeah. But the catch is, even with all levels of experience, and kind of want to get your perspective as someone who's completely new, what are some of those best ways to be a resource for those who have that shallower understanding of something? As Chris mentioned, there's hundreds, if not close to thousands, of a monad is like this concept. And God help you if you go to Wikipedia on some of these things, too, because even for someone in the field, it can seem intimidating. But are there any kind of common things that you've seen that have made explanations better and easier to understand as well across the different things that you've encountered and had to learn? Going back to what we were talking about with the recursion, right? So showing how things are going to work sort of step by step, that's always really helpful. And so some of the best posts and stuff that I've seen, including Chris's Monad Transformers talk, if you haven't watched that on YouTube, kind of take you through it step by step and let you see what's actually happening. Instead of trying to explain it in terms of an analogy or a metaphor, they're actually showing you what is really happening. And I think that that's really helpful. So some of the best posts I've come across are that kind of post. And there's actually, well, like I said, maybe I should just start compiling a list on my blog or something because there are actually some really good ones out there. And another thing is just some of the programmers that I've met on Twitter, if I tweet that I'm having some sort of frustration with a particular thing, with a particular function or a particular concept, some of them will just actually have a conversation with me and walk me through it. And that's been really helpful. I've been surprised at how they seem intimidating sometimes, like I was saying, that where, you know, they're having these conversations and I can't understand anything that they're saying. And but if I ask them some really naive question, I've been surprised at how patient some of them have been with explaining it. It's very nice. It's very nice. And some of the reason I'm asking is more of a self-serving thing of recently with conversations with other people, realizing that when I managed to write a blog post about how something works, about all those given assumptions that I've got, and trying to find the right balance of making it simple and explaining it without breaking the problem down too much where the overall point is lost. Almost like, here's how you would define a function in Haskell, but now I got to go and explain all these other things when I'm trying to actually kind of give a semi-high level of functions to get the concept across before I actually do more. How did you find some of those that were the balance? Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of what sort of is the, you know, other than breaking things down sort of step by step, what's another sort of common thread among those that have been helpful for me? It was, I guess, more of it at a level of what was the granularity that you found, or even Chris, what was the granularity you found of trying to explain things to people? Because back to a compiler, well, when you're trying to explain a compiler, there's many different levels of how deep you could go into explaining a compiler, but when you're just trying to explain a concept of something like a compiler for someone who's unfamiliar, how have you found that balance of what's too little versus what's too much versus getting lost in the weeds and completely missing the whole purpose of the compiler. One thing that helps is a lot of the teaching I do is interactive. I actually created an IRC channel, independent of the normal Haskell IRC channel on Freenode. There's a lot of wonderful people in the normal Haskell channel, but it's 1,500 wonderful people that really want to be helpful. So the interruptions happen a lot if you try to cohesively provide a particular lesson on a particular topic. So that's why I created the other channel. The thing is, is I'm not the only person that teaches in that channel, and it's already up to about 150 people. We've actually hammered out a pretty good process, but it does help that it's interactive, right? Because delivering a static lesson in the form of a blog post, it scales better, but it's harder to tune it to your audience. 
But in that interactive context, we've actually hammered out some pretty good ways of presenting different concepts like functor, applicative, monad, things like that. One quick note about monad. The thing about monads is you don't teach monads. First, you teach type classes and algebraic data types and higher kind of data types. Then you teach functor. Then you teach applicative. Then you can talk about monad. And if you try to leap directly to monad, you're probably going to fail, right? So you need to work with smaller, simpler building blocks that work their way up to that stronger, more complicated algebra. Until you've worked your way up, gone through this progression, it's really hard to get it across to people. But as far as teaching uh, style, usually what we'll do is first, Pascal is a type language, but one of the nice things about types isn't just type checking, it's that it gives you a language for talking about the structure of things. And what that enables us to do when we're teaching is we can just lay out the specification of some kind of interface. And when we define interfaces in Haskell, they're usually type classes. So first we lay out the types, then we'll say what laws they need to satisfy. In the case of functor, we have identity and, and associativity or compositionality. And then what we'll do is it's almost like a alternation between a very generic kind of high-level overview and then we'll zoom into something specific and then we'll zoom back out and try to get more general again. And the idea is that by zooming back in and out, we want them to understand the concept generically enough that if we ask them about a specific instance we haven't explained already, like a data type that we haven't demonstrated already, they should be able to tell us what it should do. And we basically just kind of keep doing that until they start really homing in on being able to implement and utilize that concept themselves. That takes a lot of different forms, depending on what you're teaching. I actually extracted some of the IRC conversations, in particular for teaching functor, into my guide. It's not in the guide, it's in a file in that same repository called Dialogues. And if you scroll through dialogues.md, it's a markdown file, you'll actually see some examples of this. Yeah, I'm sure being interactive helps a lot. And I think you kind of outlined a point that I was thinking about was when you're talking about functors, you're talking about, you start out with the interface, so you might have to, it's like, well, okay, it's got to be applicative or things like that. It's like, well, okay, do I go in and teach applicative now or do I circle back around and try and teach applicative or do I try and have to teach applicative first before? It's one of those trying to think about how you would structure it just for as you have to explain it, it makes it you understand it better, but it's also trying to figure out the flow of what someone who's just coming across your stuff. I think I get what you're getting at now. I would actually say you have like three good choices whenever you're putting together static material where you can't respond to the feedback you're getting from the person that you're trying to like share that information with. And those three basic choices are you can either go through the entire progression. Now, I don't mean to first make an apple pie from scratch. You must invent the universe. I don't mean that extent, but you do need to more or less go through the whole progression. That's choice A. Choice B is you assume that the person you're conveying this concept to is within a couple steps in the progression of learning that topic. So if you wanted to teach applicative in isolation, then you just have to assume that they understand functor. If you don't want people to get lost because they're supposed to understand a functor before you teach applicative, then you just say so. Just declare your prerequisites. Hey, if you're here, you need to understand functor, type classes, laws, data types, higher kind of data types, things like that. Just say what they need to know. And if, if it's confusing, at least they have somewhere to go next. If you don't say what your prerequisites are, they don't know what they're supposed to know to understand what you're talking about. So declaring your prerequisites if you don't want to reinvent the whole universe, that's really important. Your third choice, and I actually think this is really appealing, is treating it more like a jazz session where when a musician is playing somewhere, they're not teaching you how to play jazz, right? They're just putting on a show. I think there's actually a place for that in the way we teach and talk about programming. I don't think there's actually anything wrong with just showing off some cool stuff without any real intent to really kind of comprehensively explain it necessarily. Ideally, there would be resources for learning it as well, but I think there's a place for that too. Part of it was, as of last episode with Eric Norman, he talked about kind of going through libraries and writing up a guide on every functional library as part of documenting and kind of showing what it does and giving examples. So I've been taking that challenge with Erlang to help me better learn the language. But it's one of those things is like, well, do I assume that I'm writing for an audience who knows Erlang and is exposing this? Or do I kind of assume that someone here is more unfamiliar with it? So I've been trying to pair it with some Ruby concepts. But it's like, okay, well, find that balance of... I was hesitant to do things like map for the longest time because, like, 
I feel like I kind of have to give at least a semi-overview of functions in Erlang and how you declare functions before I can to be able to talk about passing functions to higher order functions. At what point do I just do that and just bite the bullet and just say, here, here's this function and here's a very overview or should I say, okay, well, I'm going to presume you know nothing about functions, so I've got to take a step out of that and go back to discussing functions and things like that. I actually think the second approach I mentioned would apply really well to that. I think it would be entirely fair to not try to explain everything every single time you're trying to explain a particular function or like. I wouldn't be upset at all if I was reading something like what you're talking about where it said, okay, I'm going to describe this function within an Erlang service. If you want to understand that, you need to understand supervisor trees and OTP and the binary data comprehension, uh, the nice syntax that Erlang has for that. You You need to understand these things. And then as long as you give people something to Google or click or some next thing that they can do so they know what they need to know, I think that's pretty fair. I think trying to reteach the entirety of Erlang in each instance is probably going to be more frustration than it's worth, but that's my opinion. Yeah, no, I would agree with that, but if you know some other blog posts or resources that they could go to to explain those prerequisites, then linking them directly or something like that would be really helpful instead of just sort of sending them out to Google, because for all you know, they may end up on some dude's blog who doesn't explain it very well, and then they're just more confused. So if you do know resources, then pointing them directly to them would be more helpful than just sort of sending them out to Google, in my opinion. Oh, yeah, that's a very good idea. And in fact, that's part of the reason I put together the guide was so that I could just, whenever somebody asked about something or I needed to reference the best way to learn a particular topic within Haskell, it was so I could just link to that subsection and then just point at it and not have to worry about, well, are they going to be able to find good materials for this? I don't know. Right. And I was kind of borderlining a fourth option, I think, that you didn't outline. And to explain and show some of these other concepts, people kind of get the idea through a little bit of exposure and variations as to what some of this thing might be just by pure exposure of that pattern. Kind of like seeing a type in Haskell declared over and over without actually explaining types, but knowing types are there where you kind of say, okay, I think I kind of see the pattern of what makes up a type definition kind of thing. Yeah. To get back, what are some of the weaknesses that we've been doing for people learning that are some of the easy wins that we can cover that you've seen in your perspective when you were learning Haskell? Uh, Is there anything that stood out that's like, well, had people actually done these, what seemed like small little things, it would make it that much more accessible? Like you mentioned the links to other resources about that explain it. Are there any other things like that that you think we can do as a community when we're trying to put together some of these resources that would help people coming in and learning either a completely new or a new language? Yeah, that would be one thing. If you're talking about teaching Haskell to somebody who has no programming experience, then not trying to explain everything in terms of how it works in OOP or imperative languages would be helpful too, because for somebody whose first language is a functional language, that's really not very helpful. But I do understand that most people who are learning Haskell, that's where they're coming from. And so that probably does help them. Well, what are some other things that... Or even just other things that you're like, learning this, I wish I had this. Before I got it, I wish I had could either be things that you've found that certain people do that you wish more would do or just things that you found were lacking that now that you know you wish there were better resources out there. Right. That is a good question. Hmm. I don't know. I think that there actually are some pretty good resources out there. I would just like to see them, I guess, brought more. So right now, because a lot of the Haskell materials that are out there, including some of the books that I've looked at, So some books are really good at explaining certain things, or some bloggers are really good at explaining certain things, but there's no sort of one package that kind of explains everything. I mean, there's nothing that can take you from like zero in Haskell to understanding everything. Obviously, that's too optimistic, but even really too advanced stuff, right? I mean, that's one of the things that I think Chris has talked about because he's writing a book, and that a lot of the materials that are out there don't explain some of the higher level concepts very well and so there's really nothing that's out there that's just sort of one package that could or even just two if they were sequential or something that can take you from understanding nothing about Haskell or functional programming to okay now I can write successful programs and I think that would be really helpful to have that instead of having to sort of patch things together from a lot of different resources. So almost a zero to Haskell site that's kind of like Chris's documentation guide 
but yeah. more fleshed out and more of a fuller website where you could find an index of functors and here's every resource you would want to ever know about functors or things like that. Right. Yeah, something like that, yeah. So kind of having all that in one place would be really nice and helpful. I think, obviously, Chris knows a lot about Haskell and knows a lot of good resources to point me at, and so I've been having good luck with finding those things, but it would be helpful if they were a little bit more cohesive. And it's more about because there is only one Chris and his time is finite and spread. It's how can we help those others that may be interested in learning? Some of us are so far removed from it, we need the guidance of remembering what it's like to be just learning something or learning that thing for the first time without a whole bunch of other previous context. Sure, sure. This is my fourth or fifth functional programming language that I've moved through, so it's been so long since I've done this versus, okay, I'm picking up my first functional language versus an OOP thing. Sure, yeah. Well, there is, like you said, the IRC channel. I haven't spent a lot of time in there. I know there are people in there who are helpful teachers. I personally find it really intimidating, so I don't spend a lot of time on IRC. But that does exist, and I have heard that it's been helpful for other people. Just for some reason, I find it really intimidating. So probably because not having ever been a programmer before, like I've never spent any time on IRC at all. I mean, I didn't even know what IRC was when I met Chris. So (laughs) just finding out about it was part of my learning experience. But those people are there. And like I said, I've heard that from some other people who are trying to learn Haskell that that channel has been really helpful for them. So there are other people out there who answer those questions and point you at those resources, since Chris is just one guy. But yeah, I don't know. It is something that I would like to see happen for the community, to have something more cohesive to take you from nothing, just starting to some of the higher level, more advanced Haskell topics that would be a little bit better ordered and in a more cohesive style than what's out there right now. I have a few Christmas wishes, actually. So talk about somebody other than myself, I would point out that Oliver Charles's 24 Days of, normally it's 24 Days of Hackage, which is the library repository for Haskell, but this year he's doing GHC extensions, and it's, we're three days into the 24 days, and it's really good so far, and he has a lot of stuff on his blog. He goes by Acid2 on Twitter, his account name will be like, oh, Charles, and some other stuff. Anyway, so he's got a really good blog series going there. Gabriel Gonzalez... That's that's not beginner stuff. No, it's not. Gabriel Gonzalez has a really good blog. That's not beginner stuff either. I basically don't teach in Haskell Beginners directly anymore because I'm working on the book. There's a lot of people that have stepped up to help new people on that channel. There's probably a stable of at least 10 to 15 people, so maybe a 1 to 10 teacher-to-learner ratio, helping people out in the IRC channel. And that's just in my IRC channel. The regular Haskell channel is 1,500 people. Plenty of them are experienced Haskell users. One Christmas wish I would have is it would be nice if people that used Haskell in production talked about the operational side of it more. We have plenty of people eager to teach the basics. We have plenty of people eager to teach the, oh, look at this fancy thing I did with the type system, that sort of thing. Something a little bit in between that's specific to applied Haskell would be really cool, especially like if you look around for Java resources, early resources, there's a lot of like war story type blog posts of, well, we tried this to solve this problem, it didn't work, we ended up changing over to this thing, and it worked better, right? If you Google for Erlang and Amnesia, for example, you'll get plenty of war stories about situations where Amnesia has or hasn't worked for people. There was that UK middleware company that used Erlang to build the multiplayer backend for Call of Duty. They had some pretty cool stuff where they were talking about basically like Erlang back-end service, war story type stuff. So more things like that. I would basically like the people using Haskell Production to come out of the woodwork and talk about their experiences more. I think that's a really big need right now. And I think in Julie's summary, she actually hit on one of the things I was trying to get at, but kind of didn't actually put the word to it, was making sure we're not being intimidating for people coming in and learning something for the first time and making them feel intimidated and not wanting to go into that and feel like they're, they're not welcome for one reason or another, just because it may be unfamiliar and, as Julie said, was IRC's too much to think about on top of another tool versus not feeling brave enough to get in there or be welcomed there, and how do we lower that barriers? But I guess just, were there any other things that you found intimidating that we could do to be less intimidating as a community overall? In my experience so far, I don't think anybody's been trying to be intimidating. 
it's just there's a sort of culture and you sort of take things for granted that for somebody like me it's just all kind of new and sometimes in IRC people get talking back and forth really fast and I have a hard time following who's talking to who and stuff like that and so I just find it intimidating but it's not because they're trying to be it's just they're sort of comfortable in that medium and I'm not and so I don't know how you would I think it's just gonna take time for me to get sort of accustomed to it and so I sort of lurk in there once in a while and see what's going on (laughs) and it's just going to take some time for me to get accustomed to it. I suppose it takes some time for most people to get accustomed to it. It's just been so long that now that they're you know working programmers or whatever that they just are accustomed to it and take it for granted. But I mean I haven't had a lot of experiences where I felt like people were trying to be intimidating and so I'm not sure what they would do different but. What I think Proctor might be getting at has more to do with people that have already been programming for a while than it would somebody completely new to programming. Because somebody completely new to programming expects things to be unfamiliar, not to know words, not to know how to do something, right? Right. The idea of building a web application is more or less equally as intimidating no matter what language or community they get introduced to if they haven't programmed before. Sure. The cultural difference is when somebody's been bouncing around between what amounts to mostly the same language but with different syntax, like if somebody started with Python and then learned JavaScript so they could do stuff with web apps and then they learned Ruby so they could get a Rails job. The overlap there is immense. They're not that different. What happens then is if they encounter Haskell, they have these nice, cheap, easy victories in their wake and they expect that that means that, well, it's just another language, right? But the problem is they walk into Haskell and they're like, why do I need to know what a functor is? Why can't I just make my web app? And that's why I emphasize progression when it comes to learning Haskell because you can't just dive in because things are done differently because sources of advantage in the way we program have been discovered and researched and hammered out and made practical in Haskell, but it's a very different evolutionary branch of programming languages than what most people are used to. So they get intimidated by how different things are, by the different terminology used, things like that. I don't know that you really want to do things like, say, instead of calling it a functor, call it a mappable, because that'll just actually lead to the same problem as when you try to teach things in terms of analogy. Calling functor mappable is going to mislead some people. They're going to, it's going to make them think a functor is something that's not. Probably, I would say it's an issue of, uh, as business people would put it, setting expectations. They need to understand that there's going to be a lot that's alien, that it's going to require a somewhat more studious attitude. You're going to have to do things a little more step by step. You can't just dive in and be like, okay, I'm going to learn this language by building a web app. No, you're not. That's not going to work. You're going to get frustrated, you'll burn out, and you'll quit, which is what I did for about five years of just kind of skimming off the surface of Haskell before I finally got it. Yeah, I think it's all about setting expectations, not changing terminology or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Obviously, I don't, since I'm not coming from a different programming language, I don't have that, I didn't come in with the same expectations. I mean, I expected everything to be new and alien, and it actually has been a little bit less new and alien than than I probably thought, because there is some overlap with syntax and stuff, with linguistics syntax, not syntax the way you guys use it. In terms of Haskell itself, anyway, or some of the theoretical underpinnings, there's a fair bit of overlap with stuff I was already familiar with, so it's actually been a little bit less alien than I think I thought it would be, but not a lot, but some of the cultural stuff and all the many, many acronyms and that kind of thing just takes time, so... Just more of if there was any things that you noticed that were intimidating that not that we were trying to be intimidating, but had we made some minor adjustments as a community, it would feel less intimidating. But it sounds like at this point, based off your background of kind of having some of this familiarity, at least you had a good experience of not being unintentionally intimidated too much by people presupposing previous knowledge or things like that and not expecting you to know it even though you're new right like when you say what's a compiler oh you don't know what a compiler is i just started programming and it was more of that kind of making sure we avoid the micro intimidation of right (laughs) it's a kind of fine line right between being too intimidating because you're assuming that whoever you're talking to knows more than they do or being too sort of condescending or patronizing and assuming that they don't know anything and so oh I'm gonna have to use the small words so I can talk to this person right I mean you kind of have to walk a line and since you don't know what kind of background this person has or it's like when I was talking about linguistics earlier right and I don't know if you know what morphosyntax is so I'm not sure like should I explain this or can I just use the word because you don't want to be condescending like oh these people don't know anything 
right? But if you go too far in the other direction, then it can be intimidating. And so that's part of just sort of getting to know your students and what their background is, right? And so like when I've been having, say, um, Twitter conversations and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what this thing is, right? And they'll be like, oh, right, sorry, because you haven't done blah, blah, blah. And then they just explain it. And so then we can, if it's interactive like that, then it's pretty easy to overcome that as long as you aren't talking to some kind of jerk or something, right? <laughs> I saw a really good blog post on mentorship that I tweeted not too long ago. It's not by me. It's by somebody at the Tumblr account, menotninja.tumblr.com. And the title is How to, parentheses, actually mentor someone. And I'll just like count off the points. I won't read the blog post out, but I actually think the three core points made are really, really important. The first one is never say it's easy. And I actually have been reinforcing this with the people that teach in the IRC channel because just because it was easy for you, that's fine, but don't say that because oftentimes people are there to get help because they were struggling. And if you say it's easy, you're going to really hurt their feelings and you're going to make them feel stupid. It doesn't serve any functional purpose to say it's easy to understand something or to do something or to use something. Just don't ever say it. It has no purpose. You're just going to hurt somebody. Just don't ever underestimate the challenge, right? And then another was go slow and think aloud. Actually explode your internal thinking. It's really hard to do, but you basically want to explode and expose your thinking process such that somebody can basically just sit there and see exactly how you're reasoning about things. It's like when your math teacher gets on you about not showing your work. It's like that, but programming and communicating with somebody. And then the last one is it's okay to drive. The person that's learning, let them drive. It doesn't matter how slow it goes. It doesn't matter. You're either there to mentor them or you're not. And if your goal is to actually mentor them, then they really need to be driving, even if it makes things slow. And that's another thing is that if you are letting them drive, you need to encourage them. Don't make them feel bad for going slowly because it'll just make them averse to exploring things themselves and being accustomed to driving. Those are the three points, and I, I think it's a really important blog post. It just got posted like in the last week. I actually think that the second one is probably the one that programmers have the hardest time with. Programmers are, that is one thing in my experience, they can be really bad at slowing down and showing you how to go through step by step. And so they're trying to show you something and they get sort of excited about it. And so they start going through it really fast and then I don't know what's happening anymore. And so I think the second one is probably the hardest one for most of the programmers that I've had experience with. I think that it's so easy thing. I think they're doing that to try to be reassuring, like, no, no, you can get this. You can get this. And I think it's meant to be reassuring and encouraging, but it does usually come across as, why haven't you already understood this? Because it's so easy. But trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, I think that's where it's usually coming from, is they're trying to say, no, if you just keep at it, you'll get this. You can do it. I think that's the intent. That sounds like an awesome blog post, and I'll definitely make sure to put that in the show notes for people to read as they try and do their teaching at whatever level it might be. Awesome. It's a really short post, too. There's really no excuse not to read it. It's very short. It's very short. I guess that moves us into the next thing. Is, is there any recommendations that you have that either of you or both of you have for people. I know you kind of mentioned the Christmas wish list as well, Chris, in that blog post, but is there anything either of you want to recommend to our audience or just make known? This is your chance that you think you want to bring attention to other good resources or anything else neat that you found. Go ahead, Chris. I don't have a lot. I mean, I've been kind of preoccupied lately, but other than the applied hassle stuff, one thing that I would really like to exist is uh, as you, so the, the material for learning intermediate Haskell is pretty haphazard. And I think Julie touched on this. Like once you finish a book or learn you a Haskell or CIS 194, there's all this material to get you up to completing more or less the basics, right? And then you're in the wilderness. And it's not like a subtle drop off. It's just like an immediate, like there is no more comprehensive, progressive material at that point. You're picking through the bones of blog posts. So having more stuff on intermediate concepts, but structured in terms of progression, not just, you know, more shock and blast blog posts, but like if somebody did like a blog series, I would like it if people did more series uh, blog posts. That would be really nice. Like they take you from some kind of A to B on... Like the 24 of, Days of Hackage? 
Kind of, yeah, yeah. Usually those aren't a progression, but I suspect this year will be more of a progression because he's starting with the simpler GAC extensions and kind of working his way up. And I would guess that he's going to make a progression of the different little ice subgroups of related GAC extensions. So that would be a good example of that. And it's intermediate material, so it also satisfies that desire. The other thing I would like is there's another big gap in terms of... So one of the nice things about learning Haskell is that all of a sudden academia becomes relevant to you because you can just take the white papers and implement them and just make it real and make it solve problems for you. The problem is is that for most industrial programmers, and I am one of them, well, maybe not most, let, let me not presume to say that. For me as a workaday programmer with no academic background, reading white papers is really, really difficult. So if there were more people kind of breaking down and explaining white papers and research from like CS or programming language theory or type theory and breaking them down so that most workaday programmers can understand them and dare I say even apply them, that would make me really happy. And that would in fact be something I would very gladly pay for. And you also mentioned that you're working on a book. So I don't want to let you miss this opportunity to give a brief overview of your book and let people know about it and at least put it on people's radar. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So I actually I feel incredibly fortunate. The little landing page where you can sign up for the mailing list for the book is actually haskellbook.com. So that's easy, right? The goal of the book is to... It's going to cover the same basics as the existing material, but the goal is to make you stretch your legs beyond that. A rough goal is basically if you do all the exercises and you go through the whole book, you should be able to write most sort of applications that everyday programmers write, but in Haskell. There should ideally be as few gaps there as possible. And one of the kind of stretch goals, I guess you could call it, is I would like people to be able to understand things like Edward Komet's libraries, uh, streaming libraries, which actually have very, very useful practical purposes. In particular, Komet's Lenses library. Lenses is amazing. And not everybody's a fan of it in the Haskell community, but it is a pattern that's really good to know. The reason I think it would be good for people to be able to understand those things is that once you've learned a few different kind of algebras or concepts in the way that people like Komet use them, it gets a lot easier to learn new ones. So the idea is with the book is I'm trying to set people up to be able to be self-learners within the Haskell community. But until you've had that kind of core bit of knowledge and pattern recognition bootstrapped, it's very hard to do that. But yeah, HaskellBook.com, it's still very early. I actually just got done changing the way I work on the book. I changed it to LaTeX and Literate Haskell so that I could actually compile and type check all my code samples. Yeah, that's what I've been working on lately. I've also got an article at howistart.org. It's just like a little like CSV parsing demo, and it shows you how to work on a little Haskell project, use Cabal for the dependency management, and process data in Haskell. Do you have anything you want to call out specifically, Julie? Any people that you want to thank here? If there's any other people that you really want to give thanks to, or just here's your moment. (laughs) Wow. It's kind of hard to think. There would be a lot of people, I guess, who I've gotten help from and stuff on Twitter. So thank you to all the people I've had conversations with on Twitter, I guess. And some of them are just learning Haskell like I am, and some of them have been working in Haskell for a long time. So I don't really have anything exciting like the book going on. No, I'm just still trying to learn. And I've been working on a little project trying to write it in Haskell. So I am trying to figure out how to use some of the Haskell libraries and stuff right now poking away at that and see how it goes. (laughs) Well, that sounds good. I'm looking forward to seeing your evolution and continuing to go through your blog on future Haskell stuff. Well, thank you. I guess just to make it explicit, what are the best places for people to find you and your sharing of your learning experience? Well, my blog is superjimbaby.wordpress.com and on Twitter I am at argumatronic. Usually my name on Twitter is jinbaby which is why my blog is Super Gin Baby, but um, right now it's, I have a different one. So, but it's at Argumatronic. So if people want to find me on Twitter, I'd love to talk to more functional programmers. And Chris, what are the best places for people to follow you and find out what's going on with you? So I have a Twitter account, fair warning. I've tweeted about 50,000 times in the last 12 months. So put me in a list or something. But anyway, so I'm at bite my app on Twitter and my 
blog website is bitemyapp.com. The blog is very infrequent. I don't have time to really do a proper article very often, probably because I'm working on the book. But the Twitter stream is pretty consistent. Like pretty much anything interesting I find on the Reddit Haskell subreddit or on Hacker News or Lobsters that's interesting to anybody in FP or interested in Haskell, I'm probably going to end up tweeting it. Yep. That sounds great. I'll make sure to get all those links in the show note and... Yeah, his Twitter stream is actually probably one of the most comprehensive Haskell resources there is. <laughs> Everything that happens in Haskell will eventually come into his Twitter stream, I think. I'll definitely make sure to highlight that in the show notes. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, I really want to thank Julie and Chris for giving their time to talk to me today. It was fun and interesting and enlightening as well. Thank you very much. It was nice talking to you. Thank you very much. It's been great. It was really fun. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.